Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today is the first in a two-part series on the Gloria from the Mass in B minor. The reason we keep coming back to the Mass in B minor is because it acts as a compendium of Bach's best work. And it's kind of hard to say that because Bach has so much great work, but it's more like it acts as a compendium of what Bach thought was his best work, at least the vocal works that he had done. And we know that because he arranged it late in his life. He took all these pieces that he had written in the past and created some new things too, and put them all together to create this Mass in B minor. It's sort of like a showcase of his favorite stuff. Yeah, a lot of it is from cantatas that he had written in the past. And yeah, it just really, it's his favorite stuff, kind of. I mean, I think that's probably what he would have said. And he arranged this stuff into like a portfolio and the intention here is as a concert performance, but it follows a mass layout, basically. Yeah, interesting for a Protestant guy, because the idea of setting the mass in Latin to music at this time would have been much more of a Catholic thing, and Bach was Protestant. Right. It's helpful to have a little bit of context about Martin Luther, Bach being a Lutheran, which is a type of Protestant, right? So a few hundred years prior, Martin Luther had reformed the Latin mass into something that he called the Formulae Missae, which was an attempt by him to make the mass a little bit more accessible, but still was done in Latin. And then a few years later, he created the German language version of that, which had some alterations called the Deutsche Messe. And that was a big turning point in the whole process of the Reformation that's largely spearheaded by Martin Luther. And because it was music-related, we like to look back at this in Lutheran music as a really, basically a focal point of Lutheran music when it started to become a little bit more about the congregation and the people and less just about a priest and um, a choir, but then a congregation who didn't really get to participate in any music, which is kind of how it was before. Yeah, a congregation who came to church but potentially couldn't understand anything that was being spoken or sung in a church service. Yeah, much less being able to sing along. Yeah, definitely wasn't designed for that. And some of that was by design because it's a little bit nefariously easier to keep people in the dark for many reasons. Sure, and there's famous examples of corruption in the church in any age, but in that age, in Luther's day, that's that's one big reason for Luther instigating. I mean, like it's all way more complicated than this too because Luther didn't just start it, right? There's people before him that yeah. that got the, the ball rolling. But um, but that's 
But he saw the need for the church to be reformed, especially when he noticed that the church had been selling indulgences, which were like get out of sin free cards, <laughs> except not free, <laughs> not free though, because you paid for them. And that's the thing that he noticed was very unbiblical. But it made sense that people were being duped by this because they really weren't learning the Bible in their own language. So part of it was getting the Bible to people in their own language, which Luther had a huge hand in translating the Bible into German, but then also changing the church service format so that people could understand what was going on in church so that they could sing along with, and writing new music, right? So that they could sing along with the worship. So then we have to ask, why is, why is this actually in Latin still? I mean, shouldn't Bach be trying to work in his vernacular tongue? Yeah, and the answer to that is, I think we can give Bach a lot of leeway on that because if you look at the bulk of his work, most of it is still in German, the yeah. vocal work. Most of it is still in German. Those cantatas that were weekly for a long time were written in German, um, had scriptural texts and poetry all in German. And this this is in Latin as well as a few other of Bach's works. It was the convention of the time to do a couple of certain special things in Latin. Latin was still considered a special occasion language to use in special church services. Right. So now let's get into a little bit of why Latin sounds really nice on the voice, right? I, we've talked in the past about how German is a wonderfully expressive language in singing. Mm -hmm. And Latin is just different in, in a different expressive way. It's still beautiful. It's a lot more plain, I would say, sounding in terms of the actual sounds that are being heard. It sounds a little bit more clear. Um, it sounds a lot less consonant-y. There's a lot less consonant action happening like there would be in German. Yeah, it somehow, it somehow still sounds like austere and very church-like, no matter what's being sung. And yeah. there's certainly, there certainly could be Latin texts that are set to music that are not sacred. Carmina Burana comes to mind. Yeah. And in that, in some cases, the effort is made to make it not sound like sacred music. But mostly, Latin still has that churchy quality to it. And that's what's kind of funny about this is that in Box Day, even though it was totally allowed by that point to use German, Latin is still a thing that he might do to show employers that he was really serious. Right. So it didn't fade away. And even hundreds of years later, it still sounds kind of official for something to be said in Latin. It does. And you see it on diplomas and stuff like that. Things that are not necessarily church related. And, and it's not because of the Roman Empire directly. You know, it's where Latin was was the actual language it's not because of that it's because of the it's because of a thousand years later when europe decided that latin was the language of the academy yeah and the official thing and that's why it's got so much exclusivity and privilege attached to it so it's so like you said alex it has a very different sound and to speak more objectively you were describing that it has different vowels and consonants than german and other languages Right. But the, it's the vowels that are great for us choral directors because the Latin vowels are so simple and there's basically five of them and it's the A-E-I-O-U letters. Yeah, and the consonants are also simple and they don't have diphthongs basically at all, which is like the 
the meshing together of vowel sounds. Right. A great example of this is the word deo, D-E-O, which means God. And that word, like if you were just to speak it in an American accent, it kind of sounds like deo, and you're putting a little Y sound in it, right? But if you were to speak it properly, it sounds like a deo, and it goes from e to o with no y in the middle, which ang- anglicizes it or Americanizes it, really. And Latin, because of that, because it doesn't have ugly sounds, really, this is a subjective way to say this, it doesn't have the ugly sounds that make it ugly to sing, so it sounds pretty, right? That's the, that's the <laughs> subjective way to think, to think about it, right? All the vowels are just the five. You have a, e, i, o, u. A E I O U, and that's that's all, right? And even the R, which is a a sound a sound that doesn't sound great to sing, like glory, glory. Yeah, you like, you close to the R, it sounds kind of ugly. But in Latin, you don't speak R's like that. It's just kind of tapped, almost like a Spanish rolled R, except not fully rolled, just tapped. So it's like Gloria. It's a L. It's almost an L. Gloria. It's not quite an L, but it's a tapped. It's mm-hmm. tapped farther in the back in the mouth. Yeah, it's much more. You're thinking much more along the the line of the languages that descended from Latin, like Spanish and Italian, especially yeah. Italian directly. Looking at anything written in the Spanish language, it looks similar to to looking at Latin on the page for sure. And so there's a whole lot that we don't have to psychologically unpack about why Latin seems holy you know, yeah, as a yeah. language, which is really arbitrary, honestly. And Latin is not the language that people spoke in biblical times. Not really. I mean, maybe maybe yeah. a little bit. But well, yeah, like the Old Testament is originally written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. But right, even so, Latin seems to be thought of as like this sort of sacred language, doesn't it? Yeah, Latin sort of has that thing about it and it's, when you really think about it, it's just because that's the way it has been for so long. It's not, it doesn't have a holy, like, it's not like God said Latin was the language of Christianity. Right. <laughs> it so, just happened. <laughs> yeah, right. So if Bach using Latin represents him upholding a tradition that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, Bach using the certain orchestra instrumentation that he uses in this is the opposite of that. That is new in terms of Bach's day, in terms of what is, what was popular even just a generation before. The orchestra is starting to expand now in Bach's day, and he had the resources to make sure that he could use all these instruments in a work like this. If you look at the score to this, you not only have five vocal parts, Soprano one, soprano two, alto, tenor, and bass, and a bass line, which will be played by the bass instruments, called a continuo line, like we've talked about before. Cellos, the lower basses, like the double basses, and probably the organ pedals will play this. You also have a full string section of violins and violas. Violins are split into two parts, like you would normally do. And then your woodwinds, you have your flute, which is like kind of close to a normal flute like we would think today. It's two separate parts for that. 
two separate oboe parts, a bassoon part, which largely doubles the continual part, and then a brass section of three trumpets, and also timpani, which are otherwise known as kettle drums. And that's a pretty big orchestra for Bach's day. It's pretty much as full as it got. Yeah, if you go to a symphony these days, to a concert, the orchestra is bigger than this, but that's because you're probably hearing music that was written around 1800 or later. Right. In the 1800s, the orchestra, the standard orchestra, is much bigger and has more of the range of each instrument family filled out. Here we have trumpets and timpani as its own little unit, and that's exceptional for a festival theme. Three trumpets, that's a lot in the Baroque time. Yeah. Nowadays, an orchestra would always have some trumpets in it, but it would also have a bunch of horns and also trombones and a tuba, probably. Depending on the piece, could have two trumpets, maybe three. Definitely four horns for most stuff nowadays. Yeah. Probably three trombones and a tuba. That would be called the brass section. It's huge, but in Bach's day, they, they just used whatever they needed, even if it was just a couple of instruments in each family. Nowadays, the woodwinds, there'd be at least eight people. Yeah. There'd be two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, and two bassoons, at least. And then sometimes those players would double on other instruments. A flute player might double on piccolo. Uh, you might have clarinet doubling on like the higher E-flat clarinet or a bass clarinet, whatever. You know, there's contrabassoon even. And each one would have their own part, and the bassoon part would definitely be its own part. Right. Not in a lot of Baroque music is that the case, although sometimes with Bach it is like this. Also, you just have more string players. And instead of the higher strings making up a unit, like violins and violas, it would all be lumped together on the score with all the strings, and there'd be a lot more violinists, a whole bunch of violin one, violin two, and a lot of violas, and several cellos and basses. So it's this is much smaller, and yet that's only the way we think of it, because of the relative perspective we have. Bach would have thought that this orchestra for this Gloria was huge and festive. Right. And where are the clarinets? Oh, they haven't been invented yet. Nope. So if looking at this score too, it's not just about what instruments you have, but how they get employed, right? It's cool what he does here. He's got this sort of like trumpet going back and forth with the rest of like the winds and strings. He starts this piece with this really festive and happy sounding leaping figure. You also notice that the trumpets and timpani act as a unit together. That's another thing that's unique to Baroque music. It's not, it sort of gets separated later, but in Baroque music, the, the trumpets and timpani are like together most of the time. If the timpani is playing, it's with the trumpets. Yeah, usually it's with the lower of the trumpets. The, t the timpani plays with them. Or they just all play together as sort of a unit. You can hear them at, at the same time in the music. What's this music about? We haven't even talked about that yet. What does Gloria in excelsis Deo mean? Glory in the highest God. Mm -hmm. Right? Which actually, if you're just parsing the words they're supposed to be, it's glory to God in the highest. Is glory to God in the yeah. highest. And then the next... Um, that, actually, that's that's it for the text for this movement. But then it basically just segues right into the next movement, which is et in terra pax 
hominibus bone voluntatis. And if you're kind of following along with glory to God in the highest, you might recognize that as what the angels said to the shepherds. This is straight out of the Christmas account, right? Right. This sounds like something that could have been said almost anywhere in the Bible, but it's from that very specific spot. It's from Christmas. It's from the story of Christmas. Yep. So glory to God in the highest. And then the rest of that text meaning, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. Et in terra pax, meaning like, and on earth peace, right? Yeah. So, wouldn't you say, Alex, that there is a nice built-in contrast between those two phrases of, of text? I would. <laughs> yeah. And composers have definitely noticed that, haven't they? Yeah. And Bach splits it into two separate movements. Some composers don't, but he does. And they're, they're very different in flavor. And the way the Netherlands Bach Society performs them, it, se- it separates them even more in terms of the tempo. They, they're taking that second part slower. So listen to this transition, the end of the Gloria part, and listen to how once it starts the Etinterapox part, the, the feel of it just changes. Like it's still happy, but besides it being happy, everything else about it pretty much changed, right? The tempo, the sort of like range is lower, all those instruments go away, and when they come back in, they come in a little bit lower in their ranges and softer. Compared to other performances, this Etienne Terrapox tempo is particularly slow, I would say. Right. Christian, you and I have both performed this piece, and when we did, this was done faster, which I was used to, and... I have to admit, when I heard the Netherlands one, I was like, oh, it sounds too slow to me. But then, of course, listening to it, you realize this is actually a really great tempo for this. You mentioned Christian. It, it really has a lot more clarity, a lot of it. You can really hear tempo. all the notes. Yeah. yeah, you can hear all the notes. Because there's a lot of notes here in, in the Gloria and the Etienne Terra Pax. There are many, you know, thousands of individual notes across all the different instruments and voices. There's a lot to hear. And I think the Netherlands Box Society does a good job here of making sure we get to hear everything. Yeah. There's a lot of artwork that I have seen that expounds on the biblical text. It doesn't say in there that the angels were like singing this in a huge choir, you know, that there were trumpets right? Uh, things like that. And you, you, you'll see art of that, right? You'll see art of angels with trumpets and things like that. Now, there are angels with trumpets in other parts of the Bible, right? So it's not completely unwarranted to make that connection. Yeah. But just right here in this passage from Luke, it's not something that you see, but it's it's definitely an image that Bach would have had in his mind. And if you listen to these trumpet blasts that happen in between these leaping figures in the instrumental introduction here, it's just so evocative of the joy felt in that moment and the um, the fanfare, right, from the angels. I love how the trumpets just kind of blast on the downbeat in this section here, just bump, bump, just on the downbeat. But then soon after, they're kind of hitting on the offbeats. They have this bump, 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 bump thing like that.
Oh, and then that cadence we just heard there. See how that landed there? And right when it landed, the alto came in there. But on that cadence, and we've talked about this before, cadences, it's the end of a musical phrase. When that happens, it feels pretty resolved. But Bach does a cool thing here, and we, we mentioned it actually last episode, called Himiola, where the the rhythm kind of seems funky for a second. It's like instead of being this one, two, three, one, two, three, for a little bit there, he just goes one, two, one, two, one, two, and then jumps right back into one, two, three, one, two, three. Yeah, it ramps up the energy. I'm glad we now have a concrete example to play for this because we did talk about it last time, but we did not provide an example. So here's a good, here's a perfect one. Yeah, let's hear that cadence again. It's it's a great example of Himiola. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. And it all still works out. I mean, it's not like he's changing things up too much. It's just for a second, and it's typically at cadences when this happens. In fact, it's like exclusively at cadences when this happens with Baroque music, in this type of hemiola, that is. And it's just used to create, like you say, Christian, to like ramp up tension there and excitement. And that moment is just so special to me. That's my moment of Bach for today from this Gloria movement. Yeah, it all comes together so great right there. And the hemiola, also what we talked about with the timpani and the trumpets, they have something on that last unit of the hemiola as well, right where they drive that to a conclusion. Yeah, for sure. There's like bum, 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 bum thing. It's just, it's so satisfying. One thing we haven't talked about on cadences is this, there's a very typical thing that the top line does that goes down to the tonic note. And here it sounds like this. Then sometimes it'll just be like... Or whatever it is, it's it's very typically a descending line from a high thing down to the note, and the note that it lands on is the tonic, and that means that's what key we're in, which is this case D. Yeah, always getting back to that tonic pitch some way, like do, do re mi, fa mi re do. Finally ending. Yeah, do. and then the bass necessarily because it's a what's called a perfect authentic cadence, meaning that it's going to land on the tonic and it's going to be just right with the soprano note or the high note, whatever it is, being on that tonic note. And that means the bass has to necessarily do a certain thing going from the five to the one, otherwise known as the dominant to the tonic. And if that sounds a little complicated, if you're not a music theory person, this is what it actually just sounds like. And you'll probably recognize this sound from a lot of classical music. Those low notes just go exactly where you think they're going to go, and they land in the same spot. Sol, do. And that's the notes that the timpani are, and they're fixed in this time period. They weren't adjustable. They're just two notes. Right. So he had to use them in that way. Yeah, A and D. Those are the notes that the timpani play. It's right. like that one about the tuba player, that the kid learning tuba. Do you know, the, uh, do you know this one? Yeah, uh, I, I don't remember the whole thing. You got to say This it. kid, he says, I want to learn the tuba. And then the parents are like, okay, go. And then he comes back from his first lesson. What did you do today? I learned C. I learned how to play a C. Oh, great. After he comes back from the second lesson, what did you do today, son? I learned how to play a G. Mm-hmm. And then 
the third time he's gone like all night and doesn't come back till midnight this kid and the mom and dad are like where have you been son and he said i got a gig (laughs) (laughs) oh man but seriously the timpani part in this really does only have two notes d and a and when i say this i don't mean this movement i mean the whole mass in b minor that takes two or two and a half hours whatever to perform but there just wasn't the capability of tuning the instrument quickly like there is now where you have a pedal for that the pedal can just be moved up and down and the instrument like the head of the drum tightens and loosens they just didn't have that so that's just what you had to do i performed this on timpani one time and even though it was a wonderful experience for me i very readily admit that that's the easiest thing to play in that orchestra for that piece because there really are only two notes that you have to play. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things about technique and stuff that you have to really sure. not screw up. No, it's actually it's pressure. very yeah. it's actually very intense in in terms of timing, but in terms of notes it's easy. Yeah, it's true. And now here is that moment from the Gloria movement of the Mass in B minor. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Mass in B minor, please see the link in the episode description to see the wonderful performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. To hear our new episodes as we release them, find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. And next time, we will be doing part two of this mini-series where Alex will conclude by choosing a moment in the Et Intera Pax movement. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Thank you.